from uh, our Act series, of course, you would expect uh, nothing less than doing um, Resurrection Sunday a service on bringing together everything from the week, from Jesus' journey, uh, from entering Jerusalem, right through to Resurrection Day. And so you should expect nothing less than to have a sermon, a message on this uh, amazing account. Let's stay away from the, from the word story. It's not a story. It is an account of what happened, a true account as people giving witness to what they saw. So with that, our um, title of our message is the grit of the gospel. Um, the other word for grit or meaning of it is courage, the courage of the gospel. Uh, it does mean, however, though, that you're going to have to like buckle in this morning because there's going to be some real tough stuff to get through, to understand the, the true courage of the gospel. Uh, and we have to be, to some degree, courageous in our faith, trusting in God um, for everything. And so we're going to look at that. So we're going to take this short journey through the crucial moments uh, of Jesus' life from arrival in Jerusalem to the resurrection. And I think it's important to see a consistent message throughout this journey so we understand the full impact of the work of Christ. It is a journey that starts with a people welcoming in the Saviour in the face of the Pharisees. To one that ends with likely most of those people baying for Jesus' blood. The account of Jesus' journey from celebrated to hated does nothing less than expose our capacity, capacity to sin. But it also displays the power of redemption through the resurrection, of which not one of us, not one single person deserved. Jesus knew from the beginning the state of mankind. That knowledge meant that he held these perfectly seeming opposing passions in perfect contention. Lots of peas there. But one was of pain and lamenting, and we'll see that in a moment. And the other was of perfect righteousness. One never clouded the other. And were held perfectly in balance as the great judge should. What we'll find is that unless we allow Jesus to expose us to our very heart of sinfulness, we will not fully be able to embrace both the, the, the depravity and the beauty of the cross. And so not truly understand and fully embrace the redemptive work that was done on the cross by Jesus for that sinful nature. So we're going we're to take a look at ourselves, always keeping Jesus at the centre of our message. But we're going to take a look at ourselves, uh, and I think the perfect verse for this, or verses, uh, is James 1, 23 to 25. And it says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is that someone who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. When we look at this verse, um, when I was looking at it, there's certainly this undercurrent of what, uh, the, uh, the account of Jesus from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday. 
And in fact, when you read the rest of these verses, uh, we can see the sinful nature of men and women, uh, that we have a uh, we have a capacity to glorify our own selves, our own uh, selves in religious sinfulness. But then when you read it, you carry on reading it, the only way, and thankfully the way out, is through the power of the resurrection of Jesus. But these are not easy verses uh, to understand or sometimes accept. The original Greek translation, when it says, look at his face in the mirror, has the idea of careful scrutiny. It is to be carefully scrutinizing ourselves. To see ourselves as we truly are, not to be deceived by our own denial of that reality. And so it is with the journey of Christ from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday. As we see Jesus enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, we're often shown uh, the celebration of his arrival by the people of the city. And this is a true account of what happened. People were laying down um, palms and celebrating and having a great time when he arrived. But sometimes we don't like to talk about the reality of where those, uh, where these people, and certainly where we are, um, where we were, uh, and the motive behind their celebration. From what we can tell by looking across the four Gospels is that there is both disciples and a crowd of people. Luke is the only one that mentions, or at least Luke's account from Paul uh, in, in some places, but Luke's account, Luke's gospel, it's probably a better way to put it, um, is the only place that mentions disciples. All the other gospels that mention the entrance of Jesus says a crowd. So what we can get from that, just on that, is the basis that, well, there must have been disciples and a crowd, right? There must have been people who are truly uh, for Jesus, even though even those people didn't understand, we know that the disciples didn't truly understand Jesus because they kept asking questions. They would argue and bicker sometimes as well. We know the crowd would have been there because they had different reasons for celebrating the arrival of Jesus. And so what's more startling about this is that both the crowd and the disciples never fully realized the full true meaning of what was happening. To understand that, we have to go back to Luke 13, uh, 31, verse 35. Uh, and it goes like this. It says, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day. That's three days, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who, you who kill prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look at you, look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. This is among many other warnings of Jesus being on a particular mission. 
that he would die for the sins of the people and be resurrected. And that this would be mostly misunderstood by a people, including his disciples. He says twice, today, tomorrow, and the third day, I will reach my goal. Hint, hint, it is going to take three days. Today, tomorrow, and the next day. Do you not understand what I've come to do? Clark, theologian, uh, probably minister, he says this, when the hen sees a beast of prey coming, she makes a noise to assemble her chicks that she may cover them with her wings from the danger. The Roman eagle is about to fall upon uh, the Jewish state. Nothing can prevent this, but their con con uh, conversion to God through Christ Jesus, Christ throughout the land, publishing the gospel of reconciliation, uh, they would not assemble, and the Roman eagle came and destroyed them. Jesus then says, you will not see me again. This is a warning. Uh, he, and we see this warning again in Luke 19, which we'll come to. But he says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Some interpretations of this passage is uh, believe, people believe this about the second coming. Yet, I don't think so. These very words are shouted by the crowd on the day of his arrival on a donkey into Jerusalem. Luke 19 verse 37 to 38 says, When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the soldiers began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, king is the, uh, in Luke, king is the only time that the king is mentioned, by the way. But blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Not that long ago, Jesus said, the next time you will see me, you will say these words. So when I read Luke 13 and the statement that Jesus makes about the next time they will see him, it is the crucial final week of Jesus' purpose on earth. Yet even after countless warnings of his death to come, the people celebrated as if Jesus had come to deal with Roman rule. In fact, it is likely that many of this crowd will be the same people wanting him crucified later on. Jesus knows this, so in Luke 13, he had what is described as sorrow for the city. And in Luke 19, we see this on his arrival that intensifies to weeping. Sorrow begins, and then when he arrives, it is weeping because it is time. There is one week left. Luke 19, verses 41 to 44 as he approached jerusalem and saw the city he wept over it and said if you if you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace but now it is hidden from your eyes the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side they will dash you to the ground you and the children within your walls they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the only gospel that has this statement. Another theologian quote, Morris says, wept might be rendered wailed. 
Jesus burst into sobbing as he lamented lost opportunity. But Jesus is not losing uh, his stature. He's, he's not losing it over uh, and just falling apart. Remember, Jesus is God, so he's able to maintain emotions perfectly. So he has love and why don't you come to me? Why don't you come to me? This is it. This is going to be the final time that I'm going to see you. Come to me. And yet, solid in judgment, perfect judge. I don't know about you, but I've seen many uh, Easter messages in my time. And no doubt you've, you've definitely seen and heard many yourself. But Luke's account gives us a side of the arrival of Jesus that other Gospels do not mention. We are shown on his arrival, as I said earlier, this great celebration of Jesus' arrival. But not often talked about, not even depicted in movies, in TV shows, or whatever you want to call them, around the, these events. Do we ever, have I ever seen anyone either speak about them or show or depict Jesus sobbing, sobbing as he approached the city? The arrival on a donkey was indeed prophesied in scripture, but the significance in Jesus using a donkey is, is not often contrasted with the second coming described in Revelation. And when you, when you look at Jesus on a donkey and then look at Jesus in Revelation, you need to know the difference and the contrast. Revelation 19, 11 to 16, I saw heaven standing open there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dripped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has name, the name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. I think we need to see that Jesus riding on a donkey was to come humbly and in grace. The picture, the, the, the huge contrast between that of the arrival of, of, a, of a poor, humble Jesus on a donkey. It's so inoffensive, isn't it? A donkey is so inoffensive. Comes in grace, comes in humility. And then we see in Revelation. The second coming no more donkey he's coming to finish the work he's coming to do what he has been uh, called planned to do he will return on a horse with justice as he rightly judges so when you hear these people when you hear when you when we see this story and you see this blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord we should not take this lightly. This is a warning from history. It is not that Jesus has come to please our desires for a 
version of our freedom. Oh, but indeed, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord before the righteous judge makes the righteous judgment. When Jesus weeps, it's not a pathetic whimpering in the corner, being overtaken by his emotions. It is sobbing that is perfectly balanced with the righteousness of God. Quote from Morgan. A few quotes today. The cry was that of a frustrated desire. He had visited the city with the desire to deliver it from the things of destruction and with the offers of the things of peace. The spiritual blindness of the rulers and people were such that they did not discern the meaning of the visitation. The result was inevitable. There could be no escape from the destruction. See, because of their desire for a political leader, for someone to take over Rome, someone to remove the leaders of the time, rather than a true biblical saviour, this is what would bring them destruction. Josephus, a Jewish historian, uh, has a description of the defeat in AD 70 and shows just how true Jesus is. It says prediction, but prophecy, I would say, is. He says this, All hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews, together with their liberty of going out of the city. Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families. Uh, the upper rooms of women and infants that were dying by famine and the lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the age, the children also, and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with the famine and fell down dead, whosoever their misery seized them. For a time the dead were buried, but afterwards, when they could not do that, uh, they had them cast down from the wall into the valleys beneath. You see, this warning from Jesus that what was about to come after this is not to be taken lightly. And so it is that the cross, that Jesus' arrival, Jesus' punishment, his death, his resurrection, is also not to be taken lightly. As we move through the final days of Jesus' time on earth, what we find is a turning from celebration to hatred. What we find are people's own desires and aspirations are not the same as Jesus' mission and purpose. So what shall we do when Jesus exposes our greed or selfish desire for power? We shall crucify him. When Jesus speaks in extreme directness that exposes our sinful nature, such as these verses, John 8 verse 34, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. John 8, uh, sorry, John 3 verse 3, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. What is our response to Jesus' directness about our insufficiency? Our response was to deny the very nature that we know to be true of us all. It is to deny the capacity for depravity that we see in the mirror. You see, if we don't recognize that we have capacity, capacity, the ability to do something sinful, to be sinful, to be depraved as fallen people, 
regardless of how we measure our own individual moral goodness, then we can always feel safe in the statement, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. We are as bad as each other. We are. It's very easy, isn't it? Because now what we have, and probably existed even before Jesus, um, and, and it truly did, now what we have is that we're comparing with one another. We no longer identify in some ways as, a, as humanity. Now I'm not as bad as the next person. At least I'm not as bad as that person. And if I am, then we're all going to hell together. Church, how can that be a comfort to anyone? When I was told about the reality of hell, the reality of heaven, I was lost. So what do I do? What do I believe? Are you telling me there's a hell where I'll be punished forevermore into eternity? Yes, there is. It's the truth and directness of the gospel. You think I'm offensive by saying this today? Read the Bible. It is offensive. It is offensive to our sinful nature because it doesn't want to acknowledge that we're insufficient and sinful. It says, well, generally we're okay, aren't we? We're good moral people, aren't we? We don't go out murdering people. I think when Jesus spoke about uh, it not, no longer being about action but about thought, about our motive that's in our heart, even if we didn't carry it out practically. I think what he was trying to say in one sense was that we all have this capacity to, to sin. Whatever level of sin you want to talk about, we all have the capacity. Have you not heard of the stories on the news when you hear of a terrorist or some person committing a heinous crime, a terrible crime? And what is most common when they interview the neighbours? He kept himself to himself. He seemed all right. I'm telling you, on the surface, we all seem all right, right? But if we're truly using the Bible to find out who we are, then the acknowledgement has to be that we are so not worthy. We are so not worthy of this Jesus. Romans 1, verse 28 to 32. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they, did, they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. I'm nowhere near as offensive in this sermon as the Bible is itself. If you read the Bible, this stuff should strike you. What's amazing about this, though, is that when we actually realize that we're not worthy of what God has done, we're worthy 
Isn't that weird? I'm not worthy of this Jesus. I'm not worthy of God. Now you're worthy, covered in righteousness. That's a mind bender. In the NIV, these verses are subtitled God's wrath against sinful humanity. If we don't each identify as part of humanity that is dead in its transgressions and hateful towards God, we will never understand the full depth and need for the death of Jesus for our sins. There has to be something. Every day there's always a little thing that I'm, I am surprised at that I can think of or do that I have the capacity to do. When I see the news, when I see awful things going on in the world, I'm incapable of that. I'm a human being as equal as that human being. I'm capable of that stuff. Capable. You might not do it, but we are capable. You know, for what we found um, when... Uh, you, just by observation, it doesn't take long. There's not many decisions before someone can do something terrible. You know, they can be a, a quite a good citizen and get on in life, but all it takes is a few life events for someone to just do something terrible. Loss of job, loss of house, loss of family. Only a few things, but only ever a few steps away. It is to recognize that we have the capacity as God has shown us that we have. This is why testimony of a Christian, an experience, <clears throat> excuse me, of a life lived against him and then for him, a life lived before Jesus and a life lived after Jesus, is that it speaks honestly and powerfully to the change of heart from stone to flesh. <coughs> Need a drink. <clears throat> Acts 17, 29 to 31. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. God says, you have enough proof. There will be no more excuses on that day. There won't be, but what about? But hold on a second. There'll be no objection that will be worthy in the face of God's judgment. Paul in these verses and acts is speaking to people that mocked him for believing that Jesus rose from the dead. But the day will come nonetheless. Whether people believe it or not, that we will all be judged guilty unless we trust and believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who died as a substitute for our sin. When we do these Easter messages, we want to preach a good message. <clears throat> but we don't want to preach a fluff piece. We don't want to falsely build people up, whipping people up into a false emotion, as it were. Nothing wrong with emotions, but a false sense, a, a shallowness in the cross. 
We especially don't want to do that in the hope that non-believers will hear it and be inspired to investigate and seek further. But we should always be clear <clears throat> that the punishment, death and resurrection of Jesus is not done to convince people that Jesus did those things. It's done because of the sake of humanity and the price of sin. Jesus Christ had to bore the penalty of sin, regardless of whether anyone thought it true or not. What God wants is for people to trust him. Because Jesus really did die on the cross. And he really did rise again. For that salvation of mankind and forgiveness of sin. So for us on this Easter Sunday, as we celebrate the risen Lord, we do so on the basis that we understand that the acceptance of Jesus' exposedness to our sinfulness actually shattered the lies, lies of the world. And you know what happens when we accept God's truth about ourselves? When the enemy comes and he says, you're not worthy of Jesus. When he lies to us and says, Jesus can't accept you, you're just simply not good enough. Say, no, 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 no. That's not what it says. It says, if I trust and believe in Jesus, I am worthy. That's what God says. When we know about the depths of ourselves, the enemy cannot get to us. He cannot spread the lies. He cannot get to our minds and our hearts. We will trust in the Holy Spirit who will tell us how to protect ourselves and refute those lies of the enemy. I know I'm guilty. But now I'm free in Jesus. The resurrection of our Lord and Saviour. As he lives, I live. It should break us down to the point where we accepted uh, this guilty charge. That we're sinful in nature. But in that acceptance, in the very bottom that we hit, the moment we go, wow, I'm just not worthy. Jesus says, you are worthy. You can come and join my family. In that acceptance, we've been offered the redemptive power of the cross and the resurrection. Accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior is not to be done casually. And we should never preach or speak in that way of Christianity as if it is. It is great that people come and give their life to the Lord but we have to get around believers. Make sure we are encouraging one another, edifying and building the church. Jesus should not be seen as an easy option. We were dead and now we are alive. It is the contrast of contrasts. It is a, a continuous life-changing experience <clears throat> where God reveals more about our insufficiency, but also more about his sufficiency. To truly know the impact and power of Christ's death and resurrection, we must first know the dark depths of our hearts and so realize our need for a saviour. And when we do that, we can say, Lord, thank you for saving me. I'm going to leave you with a longish Spurgeon quote 
Yeah, it's always a Spurgeon quote, right? <clears throat> but I like this quote. I really, I mean, I like all of them. But anyway, this one I found. It says, I desire that you should feel resurrection power. We have many technical Christians who know the phrases of godliness, but know not the power of godliness. We have ritualistic Christians who stick, stickle for the outward, but know not the power. We have many moral religionists, but they also know not the power. We are pestered with conventional regulation Christians. Oh yes, no doubt we are Christians, but we are not enthusiast fanatics, nor even as, as this bigot. Such men have a name to live and are dead. They have a form of godliness, but deny the power of it. I pray you, my hearers, be not content with the truth till you feel the, full force, feel the force of it. I would say the full force of it. Do not praise the spiritual food set before you, but eat of it until you know its power to nourish. Do not even talk of Jesus till you know his power to save. That's amazing. I love that quote. Love it. Do not even talk of Jesus till you know his power to save. Let's pray. Do some worship, shall we? By the way, you are allowed to stand up during worship as well. That is allowed if you want to. Uh, I just want to say that because, you know, uh, you can, but you can just move to the back or something. if. Okay, but the, the camera won't see you. <laughs> but let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you uh, that you are, um, you are amazing. That, Lord, you are who you say you are. You've done what you've said you've done. You'll do what you'll say you'll do. And Lord, that is a rare commodity in this world. The only one who holds to his word and his promise is Jesus Christ, Lord and Saviour, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Godhead. Thank you, Lord, that you keep to your promises Thank you that we can trust in you to deliver us from our blinded selves, our sinful nature, that you have offered a rescue. Lord, we pray that we will understand the power of the cross, the power of the resurrection, that that passion will push us, will, will, will drive us in a sense to understand why it's so important that more people are saved, that more people come to a knowledge of you. Lord, we just want to give you praise today as we recognize the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As he is risen, we have a new life in Jesus. We no longer have to believe the lies of the world. We're no longer chained by its enslavement. But we now serve a holy God who offers true freedom. Freedom in Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you have made this possible. That nothing of us has made it any more or less but it's all about you. 
So Lord, we just want to lift up our praise and thanks to you as we worship and celebrate Jesus, the resurrection. We thank you, Lord, and we praise your holy name this morning. Amen.